I'm Beth Ricciani and welcome to Frontline Stories of Change. I'm a social worker, a founder of a social enterprise, Care to Dance, and now a podcast host. I'm excited to speak to some amazing people and organisations who share our mission to bring about social change and make a real difference to the lives of children and families. You will hear their stories and advice and I hope join in the conversation as we learn together along the way. everyone, it's Beth Vecchioni and welcome to Frontline Stories of Change. So today I spoke to Janine Davis and Nick Marsh, the two inspiring founders and directors of Listen Up. Listen Up believe that all voices matter and should be heard and their mission is to continue to amplify the experiences of minoritised and marginalised children and young people. Nick has over 20 years experience in child protection and safeguarding and Janine working in the charity sector. As practitioners and researchers, Nick and Janine have both witnessed the experiences of individuals from minoritised and marginalised communities being separated and left behind in research, policy and practice. After years of debates, discussions and a growing feeling of frustration, they established Listen Up in April 2020. They talked me through their journey in setting up and launching their organisations, from recognising the need to bridging the gap between research and practice to the impact that they hope to make in the future. So listen up to this episode, and if you're enjoying our Stories of Change series so far, let us know by leaving us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts and all other major platforms. Thank you. When we say this is a podcast, this is definitely not going to be a record, a visual recording at the same yeah, time. Definitely. Otherwise, I think I would have um, <laughs> a bit more. <laughs> I was just thinking my backdrop is so bright outside. You can't see me if I open these curtains. So I'm trying to, uh, I feel like I'm in a 1970s photo booth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. And And literally, I am... Yeah, if I get up, I need to remind myself what I'm wearing because like Zoom life right now, the top half is looking decent, the bottom half is looking concerning. I'm completely <laughs> with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for both coming to chat with us. Um, so Janine and Nick, I have first of all an opening question just to start us off, um, which we always quite like doing. Um, so if you can name one person who has been influential to you, who would it be and why? So I might need several goes at this, but genuinely one person who, who has been influential to me in more recent times is Janine, my business partner authentically and I don't expect that to be returned um or and I wouldn't want it to be returned but genuinely during this last year of setting this up up and learning from each other and working so closely with somebody who is inspirational knowledgeable intelligent occasionally funny (laughs) has been seriously an inspiration to me and I have learned so much about topics I already thought I knew a lot about and then I realised I know zero about. Uh, So Janine has definitely been a strong inspiration and I'm just so proud to have a business partner that I'm learning so much from. Amazing. Thank you so much. Sorry, that was also Siri. I think something you said got Siri up. (laughs) Siri was saying he really appreciates Janine as well. (laughs) (laughs) Team Janine. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. And Janine, who would you say yours was? Um, well, I don't know how I follow that. And um, no, I, I appreciate Nick a lot. 
I think um, there is so, I don't think there's just one um, because just my journey in life has been so colourful. And, you know, I think there have been different people in my life who have just in terms of the value and what they've brought to my life has differed and meant so much across different different parts of my life. But I think I would have to say my grandma, honestly, you know, I think, and I say that because as I've, you know, grown and I've, as I said, I am a care experienced person you know, and then going through all of my different challenges in life and, and where I am now as an adult. And I think to myself, it's reminded me of for my grandma who, Windrush generation and the plight and her challenges and what she has experienced and endured but still here still standing still of you know of a good heart and has provided me with so much education during my years in terms of my identity what it means to be black what it means to be a black woman and not just from a lens of talking about the struggles and the fact that we have to fight so hard but also the beauty it is to be a black woman and how encouraged it feels that my identity is just celebrated so I think you know, anytime I'm feeling really stressed and I'm like, Grandma, you know, I'll give her a call. Um, and I guess it might not be the, I don't know what the answer people usually expect in terms of this question, because in terms of my professional world, there are so many people, but I think I just want to take it back. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. They're both such lovely answers. And I think you're right, you're having that one person in your life who just makes you feel amazing. It's like super important. Um, so thank you. Now, I, I actually feel really bad because my husband is also really amazing and he's in the next room. Um, so I feel like he's great too. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but genuinely, he is really great. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure we add that bit in. <laughs> <laughs> So it'll be great to hear a bit more from you both about um, what Listen Up is and your individual journeys going from working directly with children and families to setting up um, the initiative, if that's okay. Yes. So Listen Up was really born out of, um, you know, both Nick and I work in and have worked in child protection and safeguarding for many, many years. And, And we met actually at a work, an organisation we both used to work for. And just from the get-go, I think there was just a commonality in terms of the conversations we were having, the challenging questions we were asking within and external to the organisation, just in terms of life in general, and really wanting to just almost feeling a sense of frustration of just always seeing a report, you know, there's that paragraph which will say, you know, we know that these groups of young people have additional barriers, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, why why do we keep saying that? Why do we keep them? Is there something about our research, our research design, our policies, our practice, why we keep reiterating the same things? And that's not to say that we haven't moved some way, but actually there is, there is still a way to go. And I think, listen up, really, um, it was established to amplify the experiences of traditionally lesser heard children and young people and not just by amplifying those experiences leading to action system-wide change in policy practice and research so I think that 
listen up all of our work is underpinned by intersectionality because again one of um the reoccurring themes we're seeing is we just take these universal lens you know universal perspectives to explore very complex um lives and experiences and we know there's no such thing as a universal child we know we're all made up of various different backgrounds identities and so forth so listen up really wants to emphasize the importance of taking an intersectional approach in everything that we do with a vision of wanting to make some system-wide and systemic change um nick would you say anything else to that yeah, just to add to what Janine said um, around our journeys, we both for uh, both of us are practitioners at heart. Although over the last five or six years, um, we have moved further into research and away from practice, um, but both of us have a keen eye on practice and stay very close to practice. And I think setting up Listen Up was also around ensuring that the research that we reading that we were coming across in our professional lives resonated with practitioners had a direct impact on services um, just a little bit about my own background prior to the center uh, where Janine and I first met I was the lead for developing uh, Greater Manchester's what's now known as complex safeguarding service and that was working with partner agencies to translate research into practice and working with practitioners and young people to co-design service and it has been an amazing success. And Louise Toy, who's taken that up, and uh, other people in Greater Manchester have grown it from there. And it's still an amazing success. And what I think we found, and I know Janine's have very similar experiences, research is really powerful when it's translatable to practice, when it's translatable to uh, policy, and when it speaks to young people's experiences, and when it has that sort of, where it's embedded in strengths, when it's embedded in lived experiences. I think there's so many things that you both have said there that really like this. I, I want to sort of jump on because it sounds amazing. And I think, I mean, first of all, intersectionality, it's something that we speak a lot about um, within our team and Frontline also speaks a lot about. It's so important because you're right. Like it's, I mean, we actually had this conversation the other day about intersectionality because we all come from like a different place and we all come from different backgrounds and have, you know, so many different things that sort of, impact and influence the way we see the world I guess and so like being able to reflect on that is super important and then the other thing that you're talking about as well is around your importance to staying like how you rate how you say it's really important to stay close to practice and I'm wondering how you both manage um to or what you both do to try and keep as close to practice as you can whilst um undertaking research well I guess the first thing is all of the work we do at Listen Up is specifically not only related to practice and wanting to strengthen um, the great you know things we're already seeing and experiencing, but also um, we work on the grounds with local authorities, with practice-based organisations. Um, that also includes children and young people, and hearing directly from them and their experiences of services that you know what they think could be done differently to strengthen and improve those experiences and so forth. So it means that yes we have um you know both Nick and I are PhD researchers but also we work in practice even if it's in a different way and not necessarily in the services in the way that we used to as you know practitioners and so forth so I think that's definitely one example um of how we keep close and we want to stay that way um we know that 
sometimes research can feel either inaccessible um, in various different ways, whether that's just how research is perceived by practitioners, um, the time to sometimes even access research reports and so forth. And sometimes they feel quite, um, you know, just full of jargon sometimes and not necessarily in a in a user-friendly way to even want to read that and we question who's the audience for and ultimately when we do any research that's always a question we're asking is who are we doing this for and we want to ensure that anyone whether it's a teaching assistant to a manager you know a young person a parent carer everyone should be able to understand what we're saying and it should be interpreted in a way which I guess, allows practitioners to be able to go away and say, well, we can do something. This doesn't feel like this far reaching, you know, thing that is going to just be almost too overwhelming to do. Um, And also it's important that we stay to practice and we keep listen up very close to the ground um, because we want to, we want to pose challenge and sometimes challenge, the word challenge might feel for for, for many um, met with a feeling of, you know, worry, you know, but actually challenge is a good thing. We want to challenge the status quo. We want to challenge and support what's happening on the ground. So, um, and and that's what we do in our work with consultations. We also undertake various different child um, safeguarding practice reviews um, as well as domestic homicide reviews so it means that we have a lens at various different aspects of practice um, yeah I'm not sure if Nick wanted to say any more there yeah I think I, I think you raised some really great points there Janine and I think when we are being commissioned by organizations we were recently commissioned by an organization to write a piece around their LGBTQ plus young people's experiences and it was going to be a desktop based uh, research but to ensure that we stay close to practice and um, hear the experiences of practitioners and young people a suggestion from myself and Janine was to ensure that we have a working group at the, running alongside of this desktop research based activity which was fantastic the commissioning organization it hasn't been published yet so that's why I'm being quite um discreet about the uh, commissioning they absolutely embraced that and so we had a working group of young people and professionals working alongside this publication so what we try to do is anything that we're involved in involved in and commissioned to do we try to always involve the voice of young people because we're both young people practitioners and the voice of um, practitioners at the same time and genuinely generally that's responded to really well and people often add that extra commission to to, to our funding that's amazing i think you're right i think i, I had it's funny actually it's coincidental but i had a conversation today about um the bridging the gap between practice children young people families um and policymakers, central government and i guess it's, it's initiatives like yourselves that really try and aim to bridge that gap um and trying to inform research but um well trying to undertake research through the lens of those who are living the experience absolutely and, and what's really important to us and it's really difficult bridge to it's a really difficult challenge to ourselves at listen up is to write in accessible and plain English. And it's really, really hard because once you're, we're both, as Janine said, currently undertaking PhDs. And so you're steeped in lots and lots of research using lots of academic language and terminology. And sometimes I sound like a, I can sound, I hear myself and I sound like a robot. Uh, and so it's a real, um, 
continuous challenge to myself and to Janine and any our associates to write in plain and accessible language so anybody picking this up whether they are somebody who uses services or somebody who's interested in academia they can pick it up and all gain a similar level of understanding. Yeah I think I guess that's so important because then I just thinking from a social worker perspective because I do find that you know and I guess you got you both probably remember from being a practitioner yourself that when you're um, on frontline practice, the demands of the job, sometimes research can be not that high priority when actually it's so important. And I'm wondering what advice you could give to social workers like myself to um, try and prioritise that research when we're practising social work and try and remember, I guess, why it's so important to, um, to look at research and to apply that within practice. Um, first of all, follow Listen Up on Twitter would be my first piece of advice. <laughs> and attend any Listen Up training would be my second piece of advice. But outside of that, I would genuinely promote audible books, podcasts, YouTube clips. I'm not very snobby about what research I read. I think get it from wherever you can and however it fits with your life. I carry a speaker around with me, which you can see. You listeners can't see but you can see because I just constantly play um podcasts I play um on um ResearchGate you can actually play a lot of the journal articles so it's a robot speaking to you but they read the journal article for you which is just fantastic um so I, I think fit it in wherever you can uh, and blogs are really really great because they're just two minutes worth of reading but we write blogs so frequently and a lot of research has probably gone into those blogs and there's just finally, and I know Janine will have comments on this, there's a really great, it's promoting another sort of um, sort of industry magazine, but The Conversation, uh, which is an, um, a publication online and, and it's academic rigour in plain English. And you can actually search lots of topics we've written for them before, lots of uh, PhD students write for them. So it has a lot of academia, a lot of research uh, based knowledge, but in very, very short um, articles. Amazing. Thank you. Janine, was there anything that you want to say on that? Yeah, I guess there's something around, you know, as a social worker, anybody working with, you know, children, young people and families, why is research important? You know, one, it underpins a lot of the work you do. So when you think about social work practice and the theories you use and so forth, which underpin and influence your work and the lens in which you understand your professional curiosity, where that comes from. Yes, it comes from, you know, all the years of, of working in the field, but it also is very much underpinned by the research which runs alongside that. It allows us also to really question our gaps in knowledge because research sometimes, you know, in various different areas shows what, you know, the various different challenges may be emerging issues. It allows us to stay in tune, in line, not just from a practice perspective, but also outside of our space. I think where sometimes we can end up working in these siloed spaces or just knowing what's happening in our local areas. But what research does is allow us to explore what's happening much more broadly, as well as to identify some, you know, um, examples of positive practice what's working well what's not working well but definitely in terms of listen up for us we're able to see okay 
what rich young people are being you know amplified whose experiences do we know about and whose experiences are possibly missing and what do we need to do about that and how can we support that in terms of increasing awareness so not only is it about the various different formats you can access research it's the reasoning behind why it's so important to access and read research and question it and challenge it and critically reflect on it use it within your supervision practice and so forth yeah, just to add to that, Janine, I think it's a really important, the last comment you made is really important around research only takes us so far. What we have to do is critically reflect on the research, look at the methodology, look at the sample population. So who's been included in the research, whose voices have been excluded. And so um, in the centre where we met, um, they were trying to establish it. I don't think it got off the ground. It might be off the ground now. It wasn't uh, a couple of months ago. It was a educate, they called it. So you would read journal articles, have piece of cake, pieces of cake with your team members and critique the research, look at its strengths, its weaknesses, uh, gaps in knowledge, etc. And I think that's a really interesting way to sort of develop learning and create some a critical lens within your team. I think that's all really great advice. And I think what... Like it sounds, I think what I would find super helpful is almost setting a time out of my diary to put that, to like allocate that, to look at research, like say reflect on it and apply that within practice in the sense of like planning the diff- how it relates to the families and children that I'm working with. And I think really allowing yourself that time. And I like what you said, Janine, as well about sometimes we get stuck in what's the going on in our local area because mm. of I'm from the northeast and you know there's very much a northeast culture so I'm sure there is in other like London or northwest and the you know differences can be huge so being able to stay up to date around what's going on in different areas is super important as well absolutely and as social workers because listen up as you've mentioned a few times is um, all about trying to amplify the voices of those often unheard or marginalized um, and I'm wondering how as social workers we can be more proactive in supporting young people and families um, whose voices maybe aren't heard um, that frequently in um, I guess getting involved in and leading in change um, and helping them to share their experiences and their stories and I would say that the work starts within, really, and that sometimes, you know, we focus a lot on what's not, you know, what's happening outside or, you know, what do we need to do? Actually, I think you start with yourselves as individuals and within the service that you're based within. And by that, I mean, what is your comfort? What do you know in terms of being able to, how confident do you feel to hold spaces around, you know, difference, especially when we're talking about young people who have been marginalised from minoritised, ethnically minoritised communities? What does that mean if the organisation services that you're based within are not necessarily reflective or representative of the communities you serve? So the conversation for me has to be both ways. It's thinking about, okay, well, as a team, how often do we have discussions around equity, diversity, and inclusion what does that look like what do our learning packages look like around that is it just something you do in an induction how often do you continue to revisit that learning how often do you explore as I said the referral pathways who's coming in who's been referred to what service what does that support look like who's missing from services how confident do we feel in terms of working with young people where actually different backgrounds experiences and so forth and how often do we question and really critically evaluate our own biases because we all have them and no I'm not talking about unconscious bias I'm talking about the conscious biases which exist which we know exist because we know we have systemic issues and inequalities and so forth so I think 
those conversations have to start within because then it allows us to one explore and understand our own positioning as professionals, as people, you know, when we come into the workplace, we're not just coming with, um, you know, our professional hat. We're coming with all of the different aspects which make us who we are and who and why we are the way we are. But how often do we reflect on that to ensure we acknowledge those things? And then I think that's what you do in terms of the work you do with young people and families um, and have those open and sometimes vulnerable conversations. If you are a service whereby, you know, you're not necessarily a representative of young people, but and therefore that work, that work and that support still needs to continue. But how do you hold those spaces in a, in a confident way whereby you can still get the best and the young person can get the best and most effective support that they need. Yeah I I agree with you Janine I think um, knowing your limitations and being responsible about your limitations and your knowledge gaps and looking to the families and uh, children families and young people that you work with as the experts in their lives and their lived experiences and thinking about what Janine said around almost being a professional, you have to be an ally as well at the same time. So not turning to individuals to educate you, whether that's our own colleagues, um, whether that's young people, not asking them to educate you about their lives, but read, listen, learn, taking responsibility for your own sort of learning in this area. And also as individuals and as groups of individuals in professional settings, really critiquing and uh, in a supportive and constructive way, critiquing your organisation around representation, around the training that you receive. What tools do you use to engage young people? Where do they stem from? What tools do you use to assess young people? If we think they're still um, used at this point in time, CSE and CCE, so child sexual exploitation and child criminal exploitation, risk assessment tools. There's research that indicates that those tools exclude some young people and include other people. So being critical of the tools that we use, the assessments that we use, looking through our policies, procedures, our publications, how inclusive are they visually? How inclusive are they with their language? Looking at the training that's available to to you as social workers and thinking, is it high quality? Is it frequent enough? Who are the people that are delivering their training? What are their backgrounds and what are their knowledge and expertise in this area? And sort of advocating for higher quality um, training, resources and publications where possible. Because um, Janine says this all the time, and I'm probably stealing the thunder for a later question. EDI, equity, uh, diversity and inclusion, has to underpin everything we do from the first phase, not as a an add-on, as something we consider later on. And so I think that we should take that attitude in all of our work. Who is this young person before me? What are their experiences? What are my experiences? How do our combined experience meet in that room? And what does that mean for outcomes, for relationship building, for preconceived ideas of our service, preconceived ideas of the young people's experiences and sort of really challenging and holding those spaces to be able to reflect on those conversations that can be uncomfortable and being happy that they're uncomfortable and acknowledging that. And I I think there is something about how we frame young people, Mm. especially young people um, who um, are marginalised, minoritised, 
Um, whether that's hard to reach, I would say, invite you or not to use that terminology. Not only does it place the onus and the emphasis and responsibility on, you know, it must be something happening over there, why those communities or those people aren't coming into service. Do we ever acknowledge or question if our services are hard to reach? Maybe it's our services, maybe it's us as individuals. And that places some responsibility, which can be uncomfortable to question or to possibly think that there must be something or possibly something happening within our services, within our teams, which makes us inaccessible but by doing that it allows us to also explore the wider systemic issues inequalities and so forth um but as i said in terms of the way we frame young people i think there has to be and that links into conversations around bias and being critically reflective thinking about what nick said in terms of preconceived ideas how does that influence the support we then provide or do not necessarily provide young people because of the various different perceptions, whether it's based on, you know, all of their various different intersections of ethnicity, race, class, gender, sexuality and so forth, that we need to start with those conversations. And sometimes they're the most challenging. But I also think that's the place we need to start to ensure we are providing young people with the support that they need and deserve. I really like what you said at the engineering as well about um you know the way we, you know we phrase like hard to reach and things like that and, and something we often say is you know we often read are oh, they fail to engage well no I feel like we fail to engage them like and it's about reframing that and actually when you have like there's there's definitely something about talking about power dynamics within you know your role as a social worker working with children and families and and talk like recognize that and I think you're so right when you're talking about we need to be comfortable with reflecting on ourselves you know our role within um within the family and how we change dynamics how our interactions are then having a, a consequential effect on how then the families could be interacting which which also means then that it's not just you know the question shouldn't just be for social workers on the ground frontline if we're talking about systemic change if we're talking about responsibility across the, the broad area of social work that means from senior leadership to frontline those conversations need to be having happening and there needs to be an organizational culture whereby having those conversations are normalized where it's safe to do that because ultimately what we see playing out is if that space hasn't been set up in a way where it is reflective it is welcomed or only by you know some or few there is an impact so it's not just about frontline social workers we're talking about power dynamics we need to also be talking about leadership and that, and that leads into um, wider systemic factors around recruitment, retention, reward, recognition within services, progress within services. How does visually around visual and non sort of um, visual um, sort of intersecting identities, uh, who's managing, who's supervising, who's making decisions, who's writing policies, who's around those tables, what critical friends are coming in. If, if your workforce isn't diverse, are there opportunities to bring in critical friends that can provide that lens that are um, suitably and appropriately rewarded for their time and their expertise in, in that area, rather than what we've seen in organisations with Listen Up. Some organisations are leaning heavily on their small pockets of diversity within their workforce to add that critical lens so which unfairly disadvantages them if they're calling out issues around inequality and then they have to go back to their workspace and be the have that dual role so i think it's important that you bring in outside agencies such as listen up or other organizations and often 
local grassroots organisations are the best organisations for that, not, not necessarily national bodies who might not know the local picture. I think, you know, there's, there are definitely small steps that are happening. And like you said, with certain individuals, and I think, you know, people are starting to um, sometimes maybe reflect more and thinking about the impact they're having as a practitioner. But I think that as a system, there's a long way to go, really, isn't it? And I think when I think about the process of um, children's services, child protection, you know, court, care proceedings, and how, I guess, sometimes how oppressive the system can feel. And I'm guessing I'd be curious, and I might be going on a bit of a tangent here, but I'd be curious to find out from yourselves around what your thoughts are around the small steps. So um, we can go towards um, shifting the dynamics towards wider societal change and wider systemic change. So I'm a social worker, um, and I'm really passionate about social work, and I love my profession, and I, all the social workers I know are really dedicated but it feels for me that social work and hopefully with Social Work England and we regain some of that sort of unity around voice and sort of impact. What it feels to me that social work uh, in particular, and I, you might want to edit this out, I don't know how I feel about saying this out loud, but it has lost some of its political element. That like it's, a, it's, it's a political, uh, it has a support function, but it has a political function to it as well. And I feel that that's we have to revisit that element. But for me, it feels that we need we need to stop being palat. This is terminology Janine would use, and I think it's really true for um, social work. We need to stop thinking about how palatable our. So I'm I'm not critiquing what you said, Beth, but you said um, some of our systems may be a be a feel oppressive a lot of our systems are oppressive they, they don't feel it they are oppressive the court system can be oppressive the child protection system in of itself in that sort of adversary nature of conferences can be oppressive and I think what we need to do is start to have more frank and robust conversations where our language is plain it can feel confronting but it's about progress and moving the system forward and to do that it can't be navel gazing just all social workers senior social workers associations of social workers it has to include people who use social services because they are people we are people we're all part of this wider society it has to include young people and it absolutely has to be determined to include lesser heard voices because if we continue to listen to the same people we're going to end up in the same space that we're in at the moment and just for Alice Gret, and I think as you said that, I'm literally an example of what you're like in sense that I I was a bit anxious about saying that just then. And it's about how do then we become feel comfortable in actually saying, yeah, this is you know this is an oppressive system at times. And I think um that's really yeah that's quite interesting. You know what? I think there was just something about almost taking the person and our just let's just not think about us and our discomforts and but we mean so well yes that's wonderful let's just focus on the reality and the hope that all of us come into this work I'm not social work background I've worked in child protection and safeguarding for over 20 years in the charity sector as I said you know care experience experiencing you know social work and having various different social workers in my life but if we start with just the standpoint that there's good intention, then we need to be able to not always go to that because I think sometimes what we do because of the fear and anxiety of not wanting to almost speak out of turn of practice, especially when we know there has there is a blame culture in social work and, and it still exists. We know this. So if we can just start with 
we mean well and there is good intention as that underpins everything that we do. But there is something about ensuring that we first acknowledge that we all come from a standpoint of good intention. And therefore, we then don't need to focus so much on the language we use, how we say things, because we're so concerned about not wanting to, you know, be seen as um, not disregarding the good intention of the great work we all do and strive to do. But we can start to focus on the impact because that's what tends to get left. I think we focus so much on safeguarding good intention. We don't think about the impact. And if we can acknowledge that, and some of, you know, this is just not up for debate, racism, um, homophobia, ableism, all of these things, classism, they exist within society. So they exist within the very structures we work within, they exist within the work, um, within our workforce. That's just a reality. And that means there is going to be oppression, there's going to be various different levels of discrimination and so forth. And that's not great, but that's the reality. And I think we just have to acknowledge that rather than sometimes, I think, centering this around I think us as individuals and how uncomfortable we feel, this is a system we work within and this is a system we live within. And, and I absolutely agree, Janine. And th thinking about social work, when we think of social work in particular, and we think of um, the dynamic of social work and the blame culture and, you know, how social workers can feel, um, because we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, you know, uh, we can be criticised for being too zealous or being too underprotective or sort of too um, like overzealous or sort of un uninterested in certain uh, child protection issues. I think when we think of the Monroe Review uh, and the role of the chief social worker and the role of uh, Social Work England, which obviously has ch had lots of changes over the last decade or so, um, we have to lean on those professionals and professional agencies to provide protection and a buffer between society, the media and their criticisms of social workers. So we feel safe enough as social workers, as a profession, to be more radical, to be more outspoken and to, go, to lean into spaces where we've possibly felt more nervous of going into before. And I'm not sure that we even though the Monroe Review is uh, close to 10 years old at this point in time, I'm not sure that we've reached that at the moment. I think, I don't know how you feel as a young, lot younger than me, Beth, how you feel around your social work profession. Are you able to speak out as a radical social worker or do you feel that sometimes you have to be a bit more cautious in what you say? I think that's a really interesting point. I'm based in the integrated looked after and leaving care team. So we're always looking for care experience young people to um, try and lead change. However, I think from a personal side, there is definitely an anxiety, I think, sometimes when I speak, I mean, just earlier, you know, there is that anxiety that if you speak out of turn when it comes to the political side um, in relation to social work, and I'm talking like, I don't know if I should be saying all this, but I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> I think it's definitely like a sort of personal professional anxiety that I have and probably many social workers do have um, in questioning. I think it's good to question the status quo, but when you say like, but when you go to the point where you're becoming maybe a radical social worker, I think then that's when the professional personal sort of anxiety is coming saying, am I being too radical here in what I'm saying? But actually I fully believe that the system um, is oppressive and I fully believe that. And again, like Janine says, like, <laughs> There is definitely good intentions from us, like from us and as from the system, you know, it's it's set up, I guess, with the aim to support children and families. But the way it is set up and the way it's running at the moment, the status quo is oppressive. And, and how do we then move from that 
to a much more supportive system that's um, got equality and, um, you know, it it's representative of everyone, all the unheard voices. And I think we've got such a long way to go to that point. It's also, I feel like, giving you permission to challenge and to be radical. Like, I feel like you've given me permission today to be radical. <laughs> <laughs> Go with it. I, when, I, I was just listening to what you said. And I think you captured it beautifully around um, the system is oppressive and actually it's oppressive to all people, but it's oppressive to some people even more and it's exclusionary to some people. And if we all accept that, and I think that's a strong well-accepted sort of basis, especially around its intention is around support and care, but we accept that it can be oppressive and that it um, excludes people. We should be radical. If we accept that basis, why aren't we radical? Why aren't we angry? Why aren't we pushing for change? I, I know around resources and the context of it, but we should be radical and we should be vocal about those things. And the, when I say social work might have lost some of its political element, that's the arm that I'm talking about, about being outspoken and being heard. Absolutely. And I think if you can't do that in social work, then where can you do that? Definitely. That's a good point. I think it's so true. And, and out of everywhere, social work is like, like you said, the, the most important place to be radical because it's, it's, I guess it's, it's well, it's questioned, it has such a huge impact on children and families you work with that we need to be questioning everything and reflecting on everything. Absolutely. So some of our listeners um, may be um, may have recognised the need in practice um, that maybe they would quite like or they have an idea of an initiative that they'd quite like to set up or um, be in that space, I guess. What would you say the key practical steps that you took um, to set up and launch Listen Up? I think first it was wanting to, you know, I guess an advantage is that we have we had good insight. Both of us were in national roles. Um, and therefore had a good, you know, overview in terms of what's out there and what's not out there. And we didn't want to, you know, I guess, just swoop in um, as saviours. And actually we wanted to see, well, what's in the areas, what what support is currently out there, what organisations are doing similar things in terms of listen up and how can we, you know, complement that. So I think for me, it's been really clear on your intention, like what do you want to do? Who's out there? Do you know who's in this space, whether it's in the local area or from a national perspective? And how can you, you know, strengthen um, or fill that gap? And I think that's, listen up, I think first and foremost, we don't stray from our focus and we want to ensure we remain that way. We want to be authentic. And I think our message is quite clear and our message means sometimes, you know, people might not always want to say, okay, <laughs> let's bring in Listen Up because we're going to, in a really reflective and, and you know, and to be considerate to, to needs, we're going to challenge and we're going to ask questions and some of those questions might be difficult. So I think it's about knowing what is your vision, what is your purpose and what is your skill set and mm. being honest with that. I think sometimes, you know, I think we can fall into a trap sometimes of this good intention, meaning well that then it's like, oh, we work with these young people and these and these. Oh, we do not. Um, because actually what we can do is bring in or reach out to organisations who might be doing that work, but actually might need some support around intersectionality or adultification or whatever it is. And we can go in and provide that support. But it's been clear on first, who's out there doing that, like a mapping, a scan of what's currently in your area to 
the purpose what skills are you bringing and and how do you ensure you stay um stay focused to what you're about what you bring and also acknowledge what you do not bring you know because I think I don't we as listen up we don't want to just be in spaces where we have no business being and I think that means we remain authentic but also those organizations who need support can access the support that they need rather than the support we feel we can offer just because we're in this space. Um, so Nick, would you add to that? What do you think? No, I think you summed it up well around um, being focused, understanding your area of interest. Interest is as important as expertise because setting up something has, I don't know how many hours we do a week each, um, at listen up. And so setting up something requires dedication. And so you need to, love what you're doing and really have a keen interest and a long established interest in what you're doing um and for me having a business partner has made it so much easier and a much more enjoyable uh, journey because it has been um stressful neither i haven't set up a business before and setting up an organization that has this um Sometimes distressing, you're coming across distressing information and um, and setting up the business alongside it. And so having a business partner or somebody who you can sound ideas off that provides some stability and reflection for you is really important. And someone who's going to, whether you're by yourself, you know, or whether you're setting up alone, whether you're setting up with a partner or a number of people, um, it is about being able to one, have a space to reflect, question, mm-hmm. but also be challenged. Nick challenges me all the time and I challenge Nick and we need that you know we need that for our learning our growth our development as well because actually if we're asking organizations to go on the journey with us to to you know through those challenges we need to be able to role model that role model that and mirror that and we always say when we go into organizations like are you ready to be challenged like because sometimes we say we want this work or can you come in and do some work around EDI and then we start the questions and then we get something quite different so it's like are, are you ready and actually as a as a as a team as an organization as an initiative be ready for that resistance sometimes be ready to feel comfortable to hold uncomfortable spaces and be okay with that and that sometimes we just have to hold silence and that's okay and it's uncomfortable but that's a part of the work um but yeah yeah I, I would definitely say if somebody's interested in setting up an initiative and they have those processes that Janine has said or those wider considerations and if you're firm on what you believe and know is right there's a freedom and a happiness and a fulfillment within that that I have gained from Listen Up that I've enjoyed lots of my roles but I have a, a fulfillment in this in from Listen Up because it's an initiative that I am absolutely connected to that I don't think I could gain elsewhere so I would say if you're if those criteria are met and you feel happy with it and you're well supported do it because yeah it's unbelievable level of fulfillment and tiring at the same time <laughs> so that's asleep <laughs> I mean there was a few good like, key messages I think it came out then and two words sort of came to my mind is um was purpose and passion I feel mm. like those two things sounds like so important to have if you're going to set up your new, new initiative and also I think a theme that we've spoken about throughout this whole podcast has been being okay with feeling uncomfortable and being challenged and mm. I guess it's sort of in any role you have in in life, I guess that's so important um, as well. Um, and whether that's setting up your own initiative or as a social worker or anything, so definitely. So just to finish, um, a couple of questions. <laughs> um, 
So what impact are you like, I guess, thinking about the overall impact for um, Listen Up, what impact are you looking to make through Listen Up? Are you hoping to bring about change by improving the way that social workers practice? Or do you feel like your end goal is much bigger than that? I know you've spoken about a few different things, but it'd be good to yeah, hear a bit more about that. I would say there are a number of things, but our work isn't just related to social work practice, it's related to anybody working within child protection and safeguarding and actually society in terms of their responsibilities and, th- and things that they need to be thinking about and how they identify and support, um, you know, children and young people. But you know, a core part of our work is our work around adultification, around how children are perceived as being in less need, or some children, certain children, I should say, are perceived as being in less need of support or um, seen as being more adult-like because of their various different backgrounds and experiences. And we really want to place a big lens on adultification because it manifests in so many ways down to the way the language we use such as streetwise down to the various different racialized stereotypes if you're black black boy black girl what that means in terms of being angry being perceived as being angry all of these things we want to ensure that at listen up we not only amplify that adultification and how the way the different ways we frame children and young people can impact on where they go, what support they're provided, and actually just the journey of recovery and healing. So we want to, um, as many of our various different goals, one of the core things is we really want to place a lens on the way we frame children and young people. And remember that we are talking about children and they have, you know, just that innate vulnerability, basic rights to be protected and supported. And in order to do that, we want to place a lens on everyone to ensure that we are questioning, remaining curious, reflecting on the various different ways we perceive and and, and, and talk about, you know, young people um, so that we remember the core of this is that we are here to protect, to support, encourage and support them on their journeys to fulfil, you know, and get their, their full potential. I think if we go back to the initial discussion and the opening around you know, always seeing this paragraph at the end of reports around, you know, additional barriers for certain groups of children and young people. If we were to achieve anything, I would like Listen Up to achieve that, where we no longer see that, where we no longer keep saying the same old and same old, but actually that we understand the experiences, those experiences are interwoven throughout everything that we do, and not just this paragraph and a couple of sentences at the end of a report. Thank you so much. And it's been so amazing talking to you both. And I'm not just saying that, honestly, I feel like so inspired, like this has been like a proper reflective space. I love it. (laughs) And I would just like to ask if our listeners, because I'm sure our listeners would would really love like to read more about everything we've spoken about today, where would they be able to find um, the different research um, that you've been doing and the different work you've been doing and just to learn more about um, what we've talked about today? Okay. You can get in touch via our Twitter account at listenupco or you can access our website www.listenupresearch.org or you can contact us via email at hello at listenupresearch.org. Thank you yeah. so much for reaching out to us. It was really good. Yeah. And it was so great meeting you as well. Yeah, Wonderful. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Beth. Thank All you right. Bye. I'll speak to you later. Have a nice weekend. Bye. 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 Bye.